welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that reminder of what your word is. That your word is your word, your very words. And uh, Lord, we just think of when the Apostle Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians and was just marveling at the fact that they didn't receive his words as just his words, the word of men but what for they really were, your very words, the word of God. And we pray, Lord, for that heart as we look into just these two verses. We pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, that we would, as the text even says, with fear and trembling, receive what you have for us here. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us a a new vigor for our sanctification, a new vigor to want to obey the things that Christ has commanded us. And Lord, we pray that we would do it in the power of your spirit and that we do it with thankful, gospel-transformed hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be your gathered people worshiping you, inviting the world to do so as well for the glory of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So we're in this book of Philippians. We're taking our time. We're kind of going slowly to savor it. It's amazing. And with this particular passage, I just thought we'd look at two verses because there's a a ton here. It's very dense, and it's just a wonderful two-verse statement about how sanctification works. There's the mystery of sanctification, the mystery of how God transforms our lives and makes us more like Christ. And there's just one command in this passage. Do you guys see what it is, the one command? I put it back here, too. Yeah, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And from the context here, we know that this working out our salvation is about obedience to Christ. Take a look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So to work out our salvation is to obey Christ. That's, that's what it is. And for those of you guys who are familiar with Paul's teaching on salvation, a verse like this might kind of grate against you. A verse like this might concern you a little bit, especially when you realize that that word work out has the sense in the Greek of to produce or to complete. You might think like, oh, in what sense does our obedience to Christ complete our salvation? That sounds a little scary to be talking that way. Is the apostle who taught so clearly that we're saved not by our own works, but by the work of Christ, by grace, through faith. Is he somehow now saying that our works somehow contribute to our salvation? And then what's the deal here with this fear and trembling part? Are we to somehow work for our salvation with an attitude of nervous insecurity, you know, terrified that we might not get it, or we might not keep it, or we might lose it, right? People have taken this passage that way, but I think if we assume that Paul is consistent in everything he teaches, and he is because this is the very word of God, we can say a few things that we know this text isn't saying. For one, 
Paul is not telling you to work to earn your salvation. Paul's been abundantly clear on this, how we receive salvation. If you flip over to Philippians 3.9, you'll see that he says that we're saved by being found in Christ. Found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So you are made right with God, I'm made right with God, Those of you who aren't yet Christians, this is how you become right with God, is you trust in Jesus, and then what happens is when you trust in Jesus, you become united to him. You have to step inside of his righteousness. You're like in Christ. You're in Christ's righteousness. And the way you step inside of Christ's righteousness is by faith. It isn't that you work enough and eventually you're in. It's that as soon as you believe, you're in Christ. It makes that sound. If you don't hear the sound, no, I'm just kidding. But... You're in Christ. Our righteousness is in him. Don't you love the beauty of that verse? I can't wait to get to it. That'll probably be our Reformation feast verse. will be that found in Christ. It works out perfectly. So anyway, Paul is also not saying that you need to work to keep your salvation, you know, with fear and trembling that you might lose it. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. He said to these same people, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Doesn't make sense for somebody to say something like that and then to later say, you know, you better really worry about whether you're going to make it. It's like, wait, you just told us you were really sure. And now you're telling us you're not sure? It's not what Paul's saying here. You know, there's no way he would have told them now that they need to live in anxious insecurity about whether they'll be saved. Paul's also not telling you to work anxiously to make sure you're saved. This is not a text about assurance. A lot of people have used this text to talk about the assurance of salvation. This isn't the verse to go to for that. And if you see that in this text, what you're doing really is you're importing your own insecurity about your standing before God on this text, because this text is not about that. And really, if you're looking to your own works for assurance of your salvation, I would just ask you, how much is going to be enough? Right? You're going to look to your own works to be assured, yeah, I'm really a Christian because I've done this, 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 and this. How much will be enough? And what makes you the judge? Right? There's nowhere in Scripture that gives you a very clear, if you did these three things or these ten things every day, you're definitely saved. There's no passage like that. And if you try to invent one, what makes you the judge? Right? So this isn't a a passage about assurance either. This text is about working out something you already have. It's about working out your salvation, not working for your salvation. It's about working it out. You think, okay, working out, what is that? Paul is talking to people who are already saved about something they need to do with the salvation they already have. If you're in Christ, your salvation is something that needs to, in some way, be worked out, developed, completed, brought to fullness. So now we think, okay, well, what, what about my salvation that's in Christ, it's totally him, it's all God beginning to end? Like, what is there about my salvation that could possibly need to be completed in some sense? Well, it helps, guys, to recognize this verse here for salvation, the word soteria, it actually has a broader meaning than just justification. A lot of times when we see salvation, we think justification, how we're right with God. This word, salvation, actually includes not just our justification, but our sanctification as well. It's not just how you were made right with God and made righteous before God, but also how God is making you more and more like Christ. Turns out the full gift of salvation includes not just justification, being made right with God, being in Christ in his righteousness, but it also includes him 
sanctifying you, making you more and more like Christ over time. It's, it's one gift of salvation. The gospel not only frees you from the penalty of your sin, it also, over time, frees you from the power of sin. Isn't that great? I just love that. It's wonderful news. I think sometimes, since you amen that, I'll go on. Sometimes when we share the gospel, we share it like this. You know, it's a free gift. Jesus paid it all. If you trust in him, then you're made righteous with him, but you're going to have to change your life. As if the second part is the bad news. And it's like, hey, you could have justification, but hey, you're going to need to get sanctified too. So just be aware. Right? When what we should be doing is presenting both as the good news. Anybody that the Holy Spirit's working on doesn't just want to be forgiven, they want to be free. Right? We want to be set free from sin. And salvation includes that. If, and so let me ask you this. If your salvation is about both forgiveness from sin, which is complete the moment you believe, and freedom from sin, which part of that needs to still be worked out in your life? Ask the person you came with. They'll know. Which part? The freedom part, right? The part that objectively is not worked out, okay? So this verse, verse 12, isn't talking about how to get saved. It isn't talking about how to stay saved. It's not talking about how to be sure you're saved. It's talking about how saved people, how they need to live out that salvation, how we need to work it out, how we need to enjoy all the gift that salvation is. The Exodus, guys, is a great illustration of this. When the Jews were promised through Moses that they were going to be saved from Egypt, they were promised both forgiveness and freedom, right? And so you see the the Passover lamb and the blood on their doorposts, and you see that as an image of the forgiveness they received, that they're receiving forgiveness from their sins. And then the Exodus, when they were actually being taken out of Egypt, that was the beginning of their freedom from sin, their freedom from slavery. So you have their forgiveness, the Passover lamb, you have the Exodus, freedom from slavery. And freedom for them and for us means obeying the Lord. In Exodus 9.1, the Lord said through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. So we're actually freed from slavery to sin to obey the Lord. Just as they were freed from Pharaoh to obey the Lord, we're freed from sin so that we can obey Christ. And notice the order, guys, when you think back about the Exodus, how perfect of an example it is of, of salvation. Because So they're forgiven, right? The, the blood of the Passover lamb, they're forgiven. They're not judged for their sins like the rest of Egypt. Then they're freed from their bondage uh, from Pharaoh. They go out, right? They pass through the Red Sea, which in the New Testament says is like being baptized. They're baptized through the, through the Red Sea. And so they're already God's chosen, uh, forgiven people, right, at that point. And then they receive the law at Mount Sinai. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't like Moses comes to the Israelites in Egypt and says, here's the law, and if you can keep this, I'll get you out of here. No, he frees them, he forgives them, he baptizes them as, into his community, and then he gives them the law. The law was given as a response to the grace of God, right? They receive that at Mount Sinai, and then they're going to, from there, learn how to obey the Lord and walk in freedom. And the Ten Commandments sound that way. In the very, very beginning, before the Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then gives the commands as if to say, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and all this list, right? This is how to respond to God's grace and how to learn to walk in freedom. So God got them out of Egypt, but they still needed to get Egypt out of them. And we see that over and over again. God brings them out of slavery, but there's a whole lot of slavery still inside. There's still a huge slavery mindset, right? Whenever they run into difficulties, they're like, remember all the free food? 
that we had back in Egypt, that's a slave mindset, right? There was no free food. They're like, we sat around pots of meat. Like, you didn't sit at all. You were like slaves, you know? Like, you're crazy. But there's that longing to like, go back to slavery. So the Lord had to work that out of them. They were, they were out of slavery, but the slavery still needed to be worked out of them. They still needed to work out their salvation, and so do we. So sanctification is a part of this gift of salvation that we have not yet fully unpacked and enjoyed, have we? We've not yet fully unpacked this gift and enjoyed it. It still needs to be worked out. I think that's what he's talking about here when he says work out your salvation. And that's what discipleship is, by the way. Discipleship is learning to do all the things Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit through a gospel-transformed heart, right? So discipleship is learning to do all the things Christ has commanded through the power of the Spirit and a gospel-transformed heart. And this text shows us a little bit of how that's done. And I don't know about you guys, but sanctification has been a lot more confusing than justification to me. Like, getting saved is very simple. Sanctification is somewhat complicated, difficult, lots of starts and stops, like long, painful, embarrassing process, would you guys say? Yeah, a lot of confusion, a lot of doing it the wrong way. It's a really weird deal, isn't it? So I think this text actually helps us, gives us some tools, some ways of thinking about sanctification. But I would just say there's a lot of believers here that would love to meet up with you and would love to talk through how you actually learn to do God's commands by the power of the Spirit through a a gospel-transformed heart. And so I would just say if you haven't ever kind of met up with somebody and kind of talked through some of these things, it would really be worth doing. Because it does take a bit of study and trial and error and things like that. But here's a few things that we can know about sanctification that'll be helpful to you. The first one is that God gives both the desire and the ability to freely obey Christ. Look at the word, look at the word for in verse 13. Did you notice that? It's a really important word there, for. How do we work out our own salvation? How do we learn more and more how to obey Christ? You know, what help do we have? And the help we have is in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. We have help to obey Christ, very present help, so present that he's like right inside of us, that God himself, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, God himself has come to dwell in you. God, the God who made the world, right? The God who destroyed the world of the flood, the God who humbled the Egyptians, the God who blew up the walls of Jericho, the God who decides every moment whether your heart continues to beat. That God, the God to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that God is here, is here in you. That should cause some fear and trembling. I don't know if you notice the connection there. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And I was just thinking about this this week, like how lightly we treat the presence of God, you know? And we've become way too accustomed, way too comfortable, right? Have we even acknowledged his holy presence in our lives today? You know, the God who set Mount Sinai on fire has come to dwell in your body, in your body, your very body he's come to dwell in. And I'm just thinking like how amazing, how sad that we can ignore him for even an hour, right? That we cannot change our behavior around this most holy and powerful guest. You know, you think about like you have somebody to stay with you no matter who it is. Life changes when you have a guest, right? You clean the place up. You, you think about them all the time, you know? You probably aren't cruising around in your boxers in the same way, or at all, when they're there, right? You know, I think 
why don't we fear and tremble at his presence within us? Why don't we make special arrangements for this guest, God who is holy? And guys, you don't have to fear God's judgment to fear him. You guys realize that? All throughout the scriptures, talk about fearing God is like a good thing, you know? Uh, rejoice with trembling, rejoice in him and fear him. You know, they're mixed together as if it's, it's an experience in which, you know, you don't have to fear his condemnation to fear him. How many of you guys enjoyed a lightning storm yesterday, like a severe lightning storm? Okay, so we know by zip code. Some of you guys, so sad. It was amazing, right? It was incredible. Ours was incredible. Yours, I don't know. But what happened in ours was, it was a normal day, everybody's chilling, all of a sudden the sky turns black, the wind starts going like crazy, the whites, one of their trees went down. They were like, I think it's hurricane force winds. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not from Florida, so I don't know what that looks like. But it was like, shh, you know, it was crazy. And then the rain came, and there was a there was a legit flash flood in our neighborhood. It was crazy. It was water shooting down. There was a skull in our yard. It was a Halloween decoration from the neighbor. <laughs> but there was a skull in our front yard that wasn't ours. It, like, took a bunch of the DG away. Our tortoises were like, cool, it's raining, and they went out there to drown. They were going to die because they're not sea turtles. But they saw the water, and they were like, let's do this. And they went out there, and then one of them was like this. With his little, like, little head snorkel as high as it could go. The water's like coming up. And our kids saved his life. So that was great. So there was heroic behavior. But it was, it was crazy where we were. I mean, the, the, the lightning was like super loud. And so we dropped everything we were doing. We sat out on the porch, you know, and just like enjoyed it. And it was wonderfully terrifying, you know? Even the wind was, because we were like, oh, look at the wind, that's cool. And then we're like, wait a minute, that's enough, you know? But you have no control, right? And as we're seeing the, the lightning and then hearing that, like, massive thunder, I mean, we weren't worried we were going to be incinerated, right? But we also weren't going to go, like, skipping on the hill behind our house. You're not going to, like, go, oh, let's go to the highest point, right? You're going to, like, stay in your patio and enjoy it. And it's such a cool picture, guys, of the fear of the Lord, where you're safe in Christ but you're still able to see his work out there and just be in awe and be like, I wouldn't want to be outside of Christ, that's for sure. You know, you're in him and you're enjoying the thunder and the lightning and you're trembling, but it's a wonderful experience too. And so that's that fear of the Lord. And, you know, I just think like, will we treat his presence more lightly than a lightning storm? You know, we stopped everything to be in awe. And that doesn't mean we're going to live in nervous anxiety, not knowing where we stand with him. But, but like with the lightning, just be shaken by his holy presence. Just be moved by his power. To legit fear him, fear and trembling, is an amazing experience. And the other question would be is, are we going to call on him for help? Because this God with this amazing power, it says here that God lives in you. Take a look at it. In verse 13, it is God who works in you, that God who works in you, both to will and to work. And it's so cool because the word work there is the same word work in 12, that we're called to work out our salvation, to like figure out how this sanctification works, figure out how to live in that freedom that he gives us. So we're to work that out, but then it says, but God works in us. And look what he gives us. We work out our salvation. He works in us, what? To will and to work. I don't know about you, but those are the exact two things I need, right? I need a will to follow Christ, and then I need power to follow Christ, right? But you sometimes feel like you, maybe you don't, 
want to follow Christ, but you want to want to? Is that an experience you guys have had? Where even if you don't at the moment want to follow Christ in a particular command, you want to want to. The cool news of this text is that he gives the will to do it. He gives the want to do it. So we can ask him for that. You know, God works in us to will. Anytime you've had any desire, no matter how faint, to obey Christ, it was because God the Spirit was working within you. And I just say, when he does that, when he gives the will, when he gives you a desire to follow Christ, to obey his commands, guys, don't ignore him. You know? You guys know the experience. You're reading the word, and it's like a certain passage just jumps up at you off the text. And you're like, okay, God really wants to highlight this for me right now. Like, this is for me. And you might, it might be a passage you try to avoid many times. And you might be reading through it, you might be like, oh, I forgot that was there, you know? And then you've been arrested, right? God has shown you this, and it's jumped off. I just plead with you, don't ignore him. That's God speaking to you. You should respond to that with fear and trembling, just as if he showed up and there was a loud voice, right? Because he did show up, right? He showed up through his word. And so what do we do with that? We ask him to help us to do it. So we see it, we're convicted by it, we're like, okay, it's time, I need to do this. And then what do we do? We ask him for the help because it also says here in verse 13 that he works in us both to will and to work. And that gets to like any ability you've ever had to follow any of Christ's commands has come from the Holy Spirit. We're not left alone. This is the cool thing, guys. It's not like Jesus saves you, he justifies you, and then he gives you a good pat on the back with a Bible and says, impress us. Like, you go do this. He doesn't do that, right? He actually comes to live within us by the Holy Spirit and gives us the power to do these things. And because he does that, I want to tell you one thing really clearly, and I think you might be like, wow, that sounds strong, but this is true. There is nothing Christ has commanded that you cannot learn to do. Okay? That doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. You know, you go like, oh, is he talking about sinlessness? No. But I'll also tell you, like, you got sinless here, and this is where you're at. There's a lot of daylight between you and sinlessness, so we don't need to worry about that, right? We could go this way for a long time and not worry about perfectionism, right? That was funny. Okay. I know it's funny. It's, the fault was with the audience. There's nothing Christ has commanded that you can't learn to do. Do you believe that? A disciple of Jesus, you could learn to do it by the power of the Spirit. And so I'd ask you this morning, where is there substantial change needed in your life? What commands have you not yet been able to live consistently? Where has sin had dominion over you? And I want you right now to write it down. And I want you to write down the first one you thought of. Because what you're going to do is you're going to think of one, and then you're going to go for the easier one that you think of next. Okay? I know this because I am one. So, Whatever it was, that is the area. That's an area you can be free in. You really can. Holy Spirit can set you free in that area. You should be free. It's actually a part of that gift of salvation, that forgiveness and freedom. It's a part of the gift of salvation. That is what needs to be worked out. That is the thing God has for you. There is nothing that Christ has commanded that you cannot learn to do. Augustine said this in his confessions. He said, give what you command, O Lord, and then command what you will. He's like, I'll do anything you tell me if you'll give me the ability to do it. And he does. He does. Give what you command, O Lord, and then command what you will. So that's the first thing. The first thing is that the Spirit is in us both to give us the a desire and ability to do it. The second thing to, to notice from this text is, 
is that we still need to act. We still need to act. Look at verse 12 again. It stands. It remains. Work out your salvation. You know, God doesn't do the doing for us. He doesn't do the working for us. He does the doing in us, but he doesn't do it for us. He does the working in us, but he doesn't do the work for us. God works in us as we act to obey Christ. It sounds wild, but it's, it's the way it works. So, you know, you hear God gives you the desire to do a command. You act to do it, trusting in the Spirit, and then he works the working through you. It's a wonderful thing, right? This command to work out, it implies great effort on your part. I think for those of us who are very careful about the gospel and we want to make absolutely sure that no one here believes they can make themselves right before God, which is absolutely priority number one, because if we blow that, we shouldn't have come. You know, we shouldn't have done this at all. But I think for those of us who really emphasize the grace of God and and that Christ is our only righteousness, sometimes we leave the impression that there's no effort involved in following Jesus. But there's a lot of effort involved. How many of you guys have been Christians longer than 30 years? How many of you guys have been Christians longer than 40 years? All right, 50? Is this fun to do? It's fun for me. Has anybody been a Christian longer than 60 years? Anyone 60, 60? This is impressive, huh? Has it been easy? No? It's not been easy? There's been a lot of effort, right? A lot of effort. Dallas Willard says this, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Isn't that helpful? Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Your effort to obey Christ is the grace of God working in you. The person that is making the most effort to follow Christ is actually consuming the most grace. God's transforming grace. And so, as we learn to bring our whole lives under the obedience of Christ, it takes tremendous effort, doesn't it? I mean, it will take more effort than the physical trainer you signed up for to follow Jesus. It will take more effort than your job. It will take more effort than the spouse you married. It will even take more effort than your new baby, right? It will take more effort than the chemistry class you signed up for, even if it's OCHEM, Okay? Guys, when the disciples decided to follow Jesus, they didn't go on, rate my rabbi, and see if it would be in, like an easy three units. You know? Will this be an easy three units? <laughs> he was like, I'm taking your whole life. How does that sound? This is not an easy three units. It's not three units. It's 300 units. Right? Learning how to obey Christ and live under his lordship takes tremendous effort. The Christian life is not passivity. It's not quietism. Paul described the Christian life as training, toiling, struggling, and striving. But every time he did, he said that it was all through God's power. He said this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Isn't that cool? For this I toil, struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So how do we practice that? How do we, how do we work in such a way that he's working? How do we struggle in a way that's with his energy? Um, John Piper has this really helpful acronym. It's called APTAT, which makes it not an acronym, but because that's not a word. I think, isn't an acronym have to be a word? It has to be an actual word. Anyway, I'm sure he tried. But the cool thing about this acronym is this really is helpful in thinking through verses 12 and 13, how God works in us and yet we work. And so he has this acronym. The acronym is APTAT. It's admit, pray, trust, act, thank. And so the way it works is this. So you see a command of scripture, something that you know God would have you to change and to do. 
First thing is admit, admit, apart from you, I can do nothing, right? The first is to admit, admit, apart from you, I can do nothing. But the cool thing about union with Christ is we're not apart from him, right? But apart from him, we can do nothing. Then you pray. Pray vigorously. Ask the Lord to cause a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your body. So like, I can't do this myself. I am basically a useless carcass. But what I need for you is I need the Spirit to so fill me, to give me the power to do this. You don't have to say carcass. I like it, but do what you got to do. So you pray. You actually ask for help. And then you trust, right? You, so you believe a truth, like verse 13. You trust in the promise that he is in us, both to will and to work. And then you act, okay? Then you obey. Then you step out there, and you attempt to do the thing he's called you to do. And when he does it, then you thank him for it. You go like, man, that had to be the Lord. People are like, wow, thanks for doing that, or wow, I saw what you did. It's like, nope, absolutely was not me. This was definitely the Lord at work, right? Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. And what's really neat about this whole passage on sanctification that I was noticing, because it's like, okay, so God's word commands me to do something. He gives me the desire to do it. I ask him for the power to do it, and then he works within me to do it. You know, what's really cool about sanctification is, is that it is true communion with God. You notice that? There's like him and me and me and him. And like, we're doing this together. Sanctification is true communion with the living God. It's a thing in which he gives his whole self to you and you give your whole self to him. Isn't that beautiful? It's true communion. It's the Lord saying, see that command that you've never thought you could possibly do? See that sin that you never thought you could be free from? It's like the Lord saying, like, it's time. Let's do this. Let's do this together. Isn't that awesome? He wants to do this with us. Your struggle with sin, guys, actually presents an amazing opportunity to really get to know God in a whole new way. That's what it's about. Not about you out there struggling and, you know, hope that you can kind of make your way alone in the world. It's about you and God doing something together. And he enjoys it, by the way. He actually enjoys it a lot. We think our sanctification is like really annoying to him. Don't you? When you repent of the same sin over and over again, you confess the same sin, you're like thinking he's like sitting there going like, Ugh. but he's not like that, right? We've been told what he's like. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? We know what his stance is. He runs toward us, which that's so hard to believe because we wouldn't do that. But that's the way he is. We return and he runs happily toward us. He enjoys this. This is his work. This is his plan. He invented sanctification to be a long, painful, embarrassing process. We didn't, right? This is something you'd have for us to do. Which gets to the last point, which is even your flawed obedience pleases God. Because our obedience to Christ is always filled with flaws. And if you don't think it is, it's probably because you haven't really looked at your heart because that's where they'll be, okay? If they aren't visible on the outside, they'll be in there. But look at the end of verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's enjoying this. Even our flawed obedience brings him pleasure. And when I say pleasing God, this is another thing that people get real nervous about. Like, oh, so you think that like we can obey God's commands and please him? Yes, we can. The scriptures talk about that a lot. And it's not talking about earning anything. You're not earning his love and acceptance because you can never do that. And you've got it already, so you don't need to be doing that. And it's not about paying him back, because that would be impossible, and it would be insulting, actually. 
you know, I gave you my own son and you're going to pay me back. Like, that's not good language to be talking about with that. That's insulting. What is it? It's just that we love him back and we want to please him with our lives, right? That's our motive. Our motive for obeying Christ is we love him and we want to please him. It's the most natural thing in the world after what we've been given in Christ. And that's what you guys have probably heard me talk about before, but the third use of the law. So there's three uses of the law. First one is that the law shows us our need for Christ. So the law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. The third use, I'm not going to tell you the second one. You have to look it up. The third one is, so the first one is it shows us our need for Christ. The third one is that it shows us how to love God back. It shows us what pleases him. And so, having become righteous in Christ, now the third use of the law shows us how to love him back. Like Jesus talked about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in the context, and Gabe's going to talk about it next week, but in the context of this, the commands that we're talking about here are both to love the people right here, it's in the beginning of Philippians 2, and also to live in such a way that we love the people out there. That we please God by obeying his commands and loving those around us. Luther said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Right? Did you love that? And so I, I just hope, guys, as you look at this passage, that you know that in Christ, even your flawed obedience pleases God. Because I think sometimes we'll think, like, we'll take that verse from Isaiah, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and think that that's how our Father looks at our acts of obedience to Christ now. Guys, in Christ, your deeds are not filthy rags. They were filthy rags if you're trying to save yourself by your own works. You know, when you were outside of Christ, God was your judge, and he was impossible to appease, right? And so all your righteous deeds are filthy rags. But now that you're in Christ, God is your father, and he's easily pleased. You guys realize that? He's easily pleased by his kids. I think there's a lot of Christians that have a very hard time believing that. But God is a loving father in Christ. He is easily pleased. I think this is super important. If you don't feel that, I think you should really pray about that because I think it's vital to making any progress in sanctification because I don't think you're going to put a whole lot of effort into pleasing an unpleasable God. I don't think you're going to do that, right? Just like you're not going to put a lot of effort into pleasing an unpleasable father or an unpleasable boss. But guys, God is easily pleased. We're his kids. All of our flaws are covered by Christ's blood, by his grace. And so it says in verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's not constantly frustrated with your lack of progress. He's not nitpicking, you know? And we all know people like that. You bring them something, they can find the flaw, right? He's not nitpicking. God's actually the opposite. He's like a skilled miner that can find the little flecks of gold in the rocks of our flawed obedience. Like he'll be like, there it is, there it is, there it is. The rest is covered by the blood of Jesus, right? That's God's heart to us. So I just ask you this morning, guys, do you want to please God with your life? Do you, don't you find your, your pleasure in his pleasure? There's actually something I want to show you real quick. There's an ambiguity in the Greek here about whose pleasure it is. This is kind of fun. It says, for his good pleasure, but there's no his there in the Greek. It's just for good pleasure. So you're like, our pleasure, his pleasure? Turns out both, right? right? Aren't you, don't you find your happiness in living in such a way that gives God pleasure, right? Our hearts are the healthiest when we find our deepest pleasure in God's pleasure. I noticed this line in Calvin's Institutes last week. I was reading it with a friend, and there was this really cool line about Adam being made in the image of God, and Calvin said this, 
Man, therefore, was created in the image of God. In him, the creator was pleased to behold as in a mirror his own glory. Isn't that amazing? So Adam's made before the fall, and the creator, God, is pleased to behold as in a mirror his own glory. I was just thinking, like, what an amazing feeling for Adam to be, like, rightly reflecting the glory of God in such a way that God is, like, enjoying what he sees, you know? And, of course, that was lost in the fall. We've regained that by being in Christ. And we also regained it here, that God is at work in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure, for his pleasure and for ours. Let's pray. Father, we've often and still do in some ways find this whole thing of sanctification confusing, exactly how to become more and more like your son Jesus, but we're so comforted to know that it's not confusing to you and that you are within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so we pray, Lord, that you would just help us more and more to seek you, to listen to you, to... um, to have a ready heart to obey you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that your pleasure in our lives would be our, our, our highest motivation. Father, we're so thankful that this flawed obedience that we'll always have in our lives, and never will there be a, a day that there isn't some sin that creeps into our, our day. Lord, we know that we are righteous in your son, Jesus. We're so thankful that we're loved and accepted in your son, Jesus. We're so thankful that even before the foundation of the world, you had seen us and chosen us to be your kids, that you delight in us, that you desire to be with us. We pray, Lord, that you give us hearts that want to return that love and affection. Lord, as we take communion, we pray, Lord, that you would so feed us on the presence of your son, Jesus, that we'd be filled more and more with his love for you. His love for you. His love for you that, that caused him to go to the cross to pay for our sins. His love for you that throughout his life he said, I always do what pleases the Father. Lord, give us his heart as we commune with him in the Lord's Supper. We pray, Lord, for anyone here that doesn't yet know you, Lord, we pray that just the simplicity of trust in your son and be united to him would resonate in their hearts, Lord. We just pray that anyone that's here that doesn't know you, that even during worship, even during communion, that we just simply reach out and say, I want to be in Christ. I want to be covered with his righteousness. I want to have his standing before God. I want to be a child of God. Lord, we know you always, always answer that prayer. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give that prayer, that you would give the will to do it today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.